0: Letting our imaginations run wild this week. It's episode 207 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. The reason I say that is because we're going to be talking about something a little bit different on the show this week. You know that we had a show on imagination, not I mean, like three years ago, wasn't it, right? Or almost four years ago. Well, this week we're going to talk to Gabriel Bateman, youngest guest ever, on the show, by the way. He's going to talk to us about The Dangerous Book for Boys, which of course is streaming right now on Amazon Prime Video. If you haven't started watching it yet, find out all about that from Gabriel. And he's in a couple of other things too. We're going to ask him about it. Outcast and something from my Braveheart fandom that... Hey, even if only I care about on the show, I'm asking him about it anyway. But man, have we got some big, big comics to talk about this week. Let's do it. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: Hey, this is writer Kyle Higgins, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: So ready to pull out that laptop, long box, or tablet, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading. And can I just say it was a really hard decision this week, to find out which books to talk about because there were so many. There's probably about five books I could have talked about on the show this week. But got to pick the two big ones, starting with Dark Knight's Metal, number six, the epic conclusion from DC Comics and Scott Snyder, Greg Capullo, Jonathan Glapion, and Co. Placencia. The creative team on this has been absolutely amazing from the get. I'm just going to get that out of the way right now. You know how I feel about the art team on this. If you've heard me review this book before a couple of times, absolutely fantastic. Across the board. I don't even need to get into detail. These are names you know. These are names you trust. You know, it's like those lawyer commercials that you see on TV. It's like, I'm a name you know and a name you trust in the community. Well, guess what? This is actually... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm not saying those ads aren't true, but when I see these names, I really believe it. So and one thing that the entire creative team has succeeded in doing in this entire series, and I'm going to go entire series on this as, as quite a bit, and there's going to be some spoilers maybe from previous issues. Just going to throw that out there. One thing that this creative team has succeeded in doing is making this book feel like it will change the landscape of DC Comics one way or another, it's hard to read a comic and really, really feel like your heroes aren't going to win. That's absolutely been done at times, but still, as a comic book fan, you really feel like, okay, they're going to find a way, I just don't know what it is. So, I did feel that way throughout the series, but there were times where it looked so bad that I thought, maybe, maybe this is the one time where it actually doesn't happen, and then where do you go from there? Now, of course... I'll let you draw your own conclusions from that, because I'm not going to spoil the ending of this thing for you. What I will say is this, is that to say that this issue is an all-out epic battle is kind of an understatement. Think like the final battle of Lord of the Rings, when they're getting ready to storm mount, the fires of Mount Doom and all the battles with the orcs and everything, the... It was almost like that, but turned up a notch, because you're talking about Justice League members and the darkest of the dark villains that you could possibly come up with. It was just so... And the fact that it didn't seem cluttered, that's the thing that's really... really, And that, that goes... It almost goes without saying at times, but it shouldn't, because that's not an easy thing to do, to make an epic battle like this not seem all jumbled up and cluttered. And that, again, is a testament to the art team and Scott Snyder and everybody who storyboarded this thing together. And the one thing I also really loved about not just this book but previous books is it really props Wonder Woman up as the motivator of the group of the League and almost is she the true hope of the Justice League. I feel like this particular arc... Nothing against Superman and Superman fans. I'm not saying that Superman is not a beacon of hope for the DC universe. What I'm saying is, is that if you're reading Dark Knight's medal and how important Wonder Woman really was in keeping this team moving forward, aside from all the great stuff that happened between Clark and Bruce in the in the Dark Multiverse, and and I, I went into that in another issue, in a review of another issue. So I'm not going to get into that here. But that was also excellent. But if you look at what Wonder Woman did in this story, without her, where does this story end up? And I know that that can be said for a lot of Justice League stories and big event arcs, but in this one especially, if Wonder Woman's not there, especially with Kendra, with Kendra and everything, and trying to convince her that she's Hawkgirl and all of these other things, where would the story even be if Wonder Woman wasn't there? So just think about that if you haven't read this issue yet, or if you have. That is the larger question for me here. Now, the other thing is is... Who knew that Plastic Man could be such a badass? And again, I'm not going to spoil anything, but if you've read this book, again, if it wasn't for a Plastic Man, and I never thought I'd say that out loud, and I don't dislike Plastic Man. I actually like him. I can't wait for the Gail Simone series. But who knew how much of a badass he could be and how important he could be in a larger story like this? And going back to Wonder Woman, I love the interactions between her and Kendra and then also Kendra and Carter at at one point again I told you there was going to be spoilers for previous issues you should have known about that in issue 5 and the and what happens with Carter and Barbatos I'm not going to spoil that either but it was a moment that I wanted Since the last issue, and was hoping would happen. And when it did, I almost stood up and cheered reading. And I don't do that very often. I actually almost never do that because that's kind of weird, right? You know, you're standing up and cheering. Maybe you're reading in a comic in a room by yourself, but I really wanted to. And as dark as this book was and this series was, they still found a way to work in humor. There's a really quick humorous bit between Damien and Nightwing that's in this that you see real quick. And, you know, lighten the mood a little bit, but it's almost like when you see if there's a changing of the tide, you kind of start to feel it in this book. And that final fight between Batman and the Batman who laughs, man, was I chomping at the bit and hoping that we were going to get that. And then that surprise help, the one person you thought would never help Batman in a million years does not spoiling it. I know you probably know who it is already because you've read this, but I'm not doing it. I'm not taking a chance that somebody hasn't read this book and spoiling it for them. I can't do it because it's that important. And how the whole thing went down. And then there's a moment in this book where they all come together. And I'm not going to say why, and no, this doesn't spoil anything. They all come together and it's, it's a very almost emotional moment if you're a DC Comics fan. And to watch how this thing all comes to an end, it was just so amazing. And I'm going to share something that Scott Snyder shared with me off the air. He said this thing almost didn't happen. And man, am I so glad that this series happened, not just because of the series itself, but all the new characters that were going to get spawned out of this and all of the of the new books that we've talked about with the new age of DC heroes that are being dawned out of this and I will say that there's an epilogue in this book that completely not only leads right into the new justice arc that's going to be coming up it actually tells you why it's happening and where it's at least going to start out so I mean just the way that it all tied together and, and the way that it it's so continuity now this series has been a pull for me from the beginning. If you don't have it yet, don't wait for the trade. Get the single issues. Go get them now. You're going to want to read this. You certainly don't want to get anything more spoiled for you than, than you already have on Twitter and stuff like that. Go get this series. You're not going to be upset that you did. And and I'm this is one of those, I don't reread anything because I read so many books. This is one I'm going to reread eventually. I can tell you that right now. Another big book that came out this week. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. It's Power Rangers number 25 from Boom Studios. And, of course, Kyle Higgins has been writing from the beginning. Daniel Nicciolo on the illustrations. Walter Biamonte on the colors. And Ed Dukeshire on the letters. Now, of course, this is the big shattered grid Crossover event. This is the official start of that. If you haven't read the previous, you know, pre issues and stuff like that, the the lead up to it might spoil a little bit there. But basically, Lord Draken is back in his world and is going to try to regain his strength. Of course, Lord Draken, the evil doppelganger kind of thing of Tommy Oliver, and we do still have the quote unquote our Earth version of Tommy Oliver that it is with the original Rangers crew. Now, I will say this, the Rangers are already dealing with the loss of one of their own. No, not who you think it is. We'll get to that in a minute. And there's a real uneasiness, and they're not really sure, not just how to defeat Lord Draken, but how to even approach the entire situation. And then there's Tommy. And again, I'm not going to spoil anything about talking about Tommy, but imagine an evil version of yourself just kind of running around and wreaking havoc for your friends. And how does that make you feel? And there's a there's a really in, a couple of really interesting uh, pages with Kimberly and with Tommy that I think if you're a Power Rangers fan, it's one of those things where it just feels like home, and it feels like exactly what you wanted out of a Power Rangers story. But then you've also got the rest of the team who's off trying to figure out how to deal. With Lord Draken and Lord Dra- and you get to see him a little bit vulnerable in this book, which I thought was interesting, but that doesn't last very long, I can tell you that much right now. Now, I will say that from what I've experienced in reading this series so far, or at least the first issue and the, and the preludes to it, is that how is Lord Draken not already cementing himself as the biggest badass Power Rangers villain ever? Doesn't it just feel that way? I know there's, there's been, even in just this comic book series alone, there's been some serious villains, and there's they've done a lot of amazing things in this series, and in the in the movies, and in the TV shows, and stuff like that, but this one just feels different. Now, I know maybe it's because tonally, this is different from the Power Rangers TV series anyway. Maybe maybe the movie being a little bit more serious tonally, it's, it's a little bit closer, but at the same time, doesn't it just feel like this guy is going to be possibly the end of the Power Rangers altogether. Again, just like I was saying before, you don't really necessarily think that your heroes are going to come to an end, but the biggest thing that you need to do is at least make the reader think that. And at least in this first issue, and everything that's been cemented with Lord Draken, you really feel that way. Now, I will spoil one thing, because I don't think we can not talk about this And it's already been all over the place on the internet and social media and stuff like that. Even Jason David Frank is talking about it. So let's talk about it. Big spoiler in this book is right after you see Tommy go out on a date with Kimberly and you think everything's going to be good and the things are going to move forward. Lord Draken does kill Tommy Oliver. Comes back to our time and kills Tommy Oliver. Now the repercussions of that Just from Kimberly alone, never mind the rest of the team, this team that already has no idea how they're going to defeat Lord Draken in the first place is now going to lose Tommy. Or at least you think that way, right? I know it's pretty clear that he's dead, but as Tom Waltz once told me, it's comics, man. Don't tell me that he can't possibly come back, at least in some form, or they find a way to bring him back kind of thing. Don't tell me that that can happen. But... It also creates the larger question of how much does this... I hate to use the term shatter here because we're talking about shattered great, but how much does this fracture? How's that? Fracture this team. Losing Tommy. Now, is Tommy necessarily the leader of this group? That's debatable, right? But he's a huge, huge piece of what they do. Maybe you think that Tommy Oliver is the unquestioned leader of the Power Rangers. Maybe you're a Red Ranger guy. I don't know. Okay, let, let's not debate that here. But let's just say that... Tommy Oliver's been such a huge part of what the original Rangers crew has done anyway. Losing that piece and at least completely fracturing one other teammate, and that's Kimberly, could have huge repercussions going forward. And then you've got Lord Draken, who now has to feel like he's unstoppable, right? And we're talking about the very, very beginnings of how the morphing process begins. That's another thing that I really love that we're talking about in this series, and it's almost like a race to who's going to find this information out first, and how are they going to use it, right? So I think that Kyle Higgins in the group has done a fantastic job. Again, I've I've reviewed Power Rangers books here before, so D'Nucciolo's art really, really great. Really makes it feel like almost an animated series type feel, even though it's not. That's that's how good to me that the art is in this book, and I think that the Lord Draken original rangers dynamic is going to be really interesting and i love that they kick this up a notch by killing off tommy oliver and hey if jason david frank is on board with this i think we should be on board with it as well so make sure you're picking up the first issue power rangers 25 of shattered grid and put this in your pull box this is a pull for me as well that's going to do it for kind of an extended version of what we're reading this week but up next speaking of extended talking about three different shows krypton constantine city of demons and siren spoiler filled next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: This is William Powell from on Freeform, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: Not one, not two, but three different shows going to be talking about on This Week in Geektainment. And let's start off with Krypton, because I didn't get to talk about the Krypton Pilot on the show last week because of the Tomb Raider view. So, I'm going to talk about the first two episodes, spoiler filled, of Krypton, which is on sci fi. Now, in case you don't know the premise of the show, the show follows Sig Al, of course, of House Al, who have basically been, you know, they've been stripped of their rank because of their grandfather, Val Al, and his research that he'd been doing saying that Krypton, they're not alone in the universe, which is basically. Not okay now because of the new kind of dictator that's leading Kandor, which is the city that of course this is all based in, and it's the the voice of Rao. Of course, Rao being their god, this is the voice of Rao, and it's got that weird multi-headed kind of helmet thing going on. So basically, they're Rankless, and Segel lives with the Rankless, and of course you've got the Ranked and the Rankless, so you've got the whole class system going on. But he has a very torrid affair going on with the House of Zod, and that's Lyta Zod, who is kind of part of the guard of the Voice of Rao, you know, like the military force, and of course it's run by her mother, who's Jaina Zod, who's played by Anne Ogbomo. Now, I will say that there's a moment where she stabs her own friggin' daughter in the, in the in the hand when they're training and says that we don't ask for mercy, and if that doesn't cement you as a badass right off the jump, I don't know what does, so... And the relationship between, between Jaina and Lyda is very, very interesting because it's it's kind of the whole, you don't think I'm ever going to be as good as you sort of thing, which, which I understand, and maybe that leads her to to having the affair that she's said. I say affair. They're not really, well, they are actually promised to others. With We've, we've got Lyda Zod, who's kind of promised to Dev M, who's a part of the guard as well. And then you've got, surprise, surprise, Seg L after he saves the voice of Rao in episode one, who is now promised to Nessa Vax, who is played by Wallace Day. Now, Nessa Vax, I don't really, I'm trying not to just go point by point here on everything that's happened in these first two episodes. I kind of want to give you my general idea, but Nessa Vax is that character I'm pointing to in the series as I'm watching it and going, she's the one that kind of interests me the most, outside of Seg Al, of course, who Cameron Cuff does a great job. As Sagal, and kind of the rises and falls of him being cocky, then him being unsure of himself, then him, you know, kind of being a little bit of a, of a brat at times as well. But at the same time, he's sort of coming into his own. You got to remember, he's what, 23 in this series? It, it, the character's are like 23, so you don't expect him to kind of know everything. And then, of course, you see him, spoiler alert, lose his parents after they discover the fortress of, Sol- of solitude, and his parents kind of tell him what his grandfather was up to in the first place. And that's before Adam Strange gets into the bit. But I want to go back to Nessa Vex before I go off on that tangent. Just, it seems like we're going to find out, and it seems like in the second episode especially, we find out that she's kind of puppeting her dad, isn't she? Duran Vex, she's really puppeting her dad in this entire thing. And may it could be the point where... She's the one that's kind of making the decisions here, other than of course the voice of Rao, who is the unspoken and true leader of Kandor and of Krypton and all this stuff. But but what I'm saying is is that don't you feel like there's a coup coming here? I mean, we already kind of had one where when you where you had Lyda challenge her commanding officer because she didn't want the rankless to get slaughtered in this big initiative that they were gonna do in the second episode, so she challenges her commanding officer to kind of a trial by combat. It's it's very similar to what you saw In Black Panther, except to a lesser degree, it's not like she's becoming queen. She's trying to become the head of her unit, which she absolutely does. So you've got that whole thing and a lot of man, a lot of strong female characters. But you really I really feel like Nessa Vex has her own plan. She even says to Seg at one point, You think my father chose you, I chose you. And now and we still don't really know why, right? We don't know why. Nessa chose Segal to be her betrothed, I guess, is the best way that I could possibly put it. So, as the show goes along, one of the things that I love is we do get a little bit of brevity here. We get a little bit of karmic relief, and that is from Cam, who is kind of... I I could think I could say that that's Seg's best friend, right? Played by Rasmus Hardiker, and man, love what Rasmus... Is doing with that character, and he's kind of the "I'll do anything for my buddy" guy, and then, I love that. And it's just them as a team when they have scenes together. That's one of the moments I think I like the most about Krypton. And let's talk about Sean siops's character, Adam Strange. Now, again, you've got him coming in there from our present time. He's got the Detroit Tigers cap on. And he's warning of Brainiac, and and you know Sag thinks he's nuts, and and it's just very interesting how. Adam Strange kind of pushes Seg, and Seg's not really buying it at first, but then he pushes and pushes and pushes, and then Seg really kind of puffs up to Adam Strange, doesn't he, saying, hey, you're not going to tell me about my family's legacy and, and what my grandfather did and who my family is. Of course, he keeps talking about Superman, Kal-El, and somebody's coming to try and erase him from history, and of course, we know that that is Brainiac. And then in the second episode, I thought the first episode was a little slow, but the second episode, they started to peel it back a lot more, and I got really, really more invested in the show because we got to see the slow revealing of Seg, the investigator, which I thought was really, really cool. We get to see Seg kind of play investigator slash detective a little bit to try and confirm all of these things that Adam Strange is saying. And we do get a little bit of that confirmation, don't we, in the second episode so now you feel like the story can really push forward. I feel like episode one was very much a stage setter. It's like, okay, here's the House of Al, Here's what happened to them. And then you've got the House of Vex. Oh, and by the way, here's the voice of Rao, the creepy, creepy leader. We don't even really hear him speak until episode two and speaks on behalf of Seg when Seg kind of pushes back on Darren Vex. and says, I won't wear your crest. I'll wear mine, and I'll be in the science division. So I... You kind of want to say, okay, who is the voice of Rao? Who is the the one behind the head? And you almost, my first impression is it's probably Brainiac, but I don't think it is now. That was my first impression in, in episode one, but I'm not really exactly sure who it could be now. So if you've got guesses, tweet the show at DownAndNerdy757. Who do you think is under the helmet of the voice of Rao? But I wasn't as sure about Krypton in the first episode as I was going into the second episode, so now I'm all in, basically. I'm all in on Krypton, and I can't wait to see where the show's going to go, especially if you've been a fan of the DC Extended Universe movies, and ComicBook.com had an article about this, and they were absolutely right. If you like the DC Universe movies, especially if you liked Man of Steel, tonally you'll like Krypton, no question about it, but even if you didn't like those, this is a very different take on a Superman story, and It really does have that potential to be one of the best Superman stories there is that never actually involves Superman. So now I want to move on to Constantine City of Demons, which, of course, is the animated series on CWC. Talk to Matt Ryan about it in a special interview segment. In case you missed that, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. You can listen to that right after you finish listening to this show. As a matter of fact, it should roll right into that episode. But if it doesn't, go find it on our website. And this is kind of an incomplete story. It's set for 10 episodes. We only get five in the initial release. But basically, it is kind of two different stories in one. It's not only John Constantine waking up, and he's kind of got this recurring dream sort of thing. And there's a whole bunch of things racing in his head. And he wakes up, and the little demons are there. And this is spoiler-filled, by the way. In case you couldn't tell with me rambling on about details, this is going to be spoiler-filled. And basically it's two parts. It's one part is John Constantine needs to deal with his own demons. And I will say this revisits what happened in Newcastle and it's different than what they talked about in the live action series. So the mystery of is this going to be tied to the live action series or not? I'm going to go with not. And that also begs the question as to whether or not this is actually tied to the verse. Now I'm leaning towards not on that as well. And I'm completely fine with both of those things. But the second part of this is also, it is a loose adaptation of the All His Engines story, as Matt Ryan told me last week. And it's that Chaz is teaming up with John to try and save Chaz's daughter. Now, one one, I love the fact that they included the Nightmare Nurse in this. Love that, that... that, that John summons the nightmare nurse who, you know, can kind of be trusted and kind of not, which describes John actually pretty well. (laughs) So it's a good fit. And she kind of finds out exactly what's going on with Chaz's daughter and finds out kind of who's behind the whole thing. And John gets an address to go visit. But here's the deal. One thing that I did not like about Constantine City of Demons and, and I, I kind of hesitate to say that because I really did enjoy these first five episodes is because these are like five to six minute segments and I think some push towards 10 minutes at some point it does feel a bit choppy at times it does feel like okay that's a weird stopping point but they know you're gonna you know you're gonna binge all of them just because you know there's five there and there's no, they're only like five to ten minutes a piece so why wouldn't you just watch them all at the same time but at the same time To roll credits at certain points felt a little choppy to me, and the fact that there were only five episodes available, it was, uh, I know there's going to be 10, but where they left it, it's almost like, okay, now we're finally getting started, and this is where you're going to leave it. So I was frustrated about that, but isn't that a good kind of frustration? Because it means I want to see the rest of it, right? And what's interesting is, if you remember that clip that they released, that three-minute clip of the show that they had released at, I believe it was New York Comic-Con, that scene does not take place in these first five episodes. But we do find out in this, in these first five episodes that the one who's behind the kind of possession of Chaz's daughter is a demon that kind of wants to create his own kind of corner of hell, and he wants five demons eliminated. So he says to Constantine, hey, you do this for me. And I'll save Chaz's daughter for you all kind of let her go. So that's kind of where we're left with it is that Constantine has to eliminate these five other demons in order to give this demon what he wants and move things forward. Now, Matt Ryan, again, absolutely incredible is John Constantine. I'm not sure anyone is ever going to be able to play Constantine again. I know that's heavy handed, but we're going to be getting a Justice League Dark movie and good luck. Good luck. To so whoever gets cast is John Constantine in that thing if it's not Matt Ryan because <laughs> he just does such a great job. I don't know how else to describe it. It's He embodies this character so much, and if you heard my interview with him, he just this is a character he couldn't let go because he loved it. And he actually has researched a lot of the Constantine stories and there's so much more that he wants to do and so much more that we want him to do. And I think that's where I'm left with this is wanting more. And I don't know if that was on purpose or not. I don't know when the next five episodes are going to be released. Maybe as of me saying this, they're being released right now. But I want to see the end of this. I want to see how it's going to play out. And the fact that the Nightmare Nurse kind of stole the information about Newcastle and how she's going to use that maybe against John at some point. I think will be very interesting. Again, this is a loose adaptation of his engine, so things not gonna come out exactly like that story. But I'm close I'm curious to see how close we're gonna get. Really quickly, I also want to give my spoiler-filled review of Sirens on oh, Excuse me, Siren on Freeform, which of course is the mermaid show that debuted this past week. The big two-hour premiere. You heard me talk to Aline Powell last week, who played Rin. And if you hadn't seen the show yet again spoiler filled review here her movements her mannerisms just the way she you know imagine being born as an adult instead of a child and having to do all of these different things but she's literally a fish out of water and that's not something that you can use literally very often but that's exactly what it is but the way she moves and the way she acts that hissing noise which creeps me out every time i hear it man if she didn't do such a fantastic job In this show, but she's not the only mermaid here. We've also got Donna, who that's who we know her as right now, who's played by Sinam Gle Gle Miambo, and I know I killed that name. I do that on this show. I apologize in advance for that. But we know that she's been kind of captured by the government, right? And this all leads to everything that we saw at the beginning with that fishing crew. And of course, we've got Xander McClure, who's kind of a friend who's kind of a friend of the main character, Ben, whose family basically runs Bristol Cove, which is the town that they're in and, and have for a long, long time. But Ben gets to find out something very interesting about his family, actually. How would you feel if your family, you who you really didn't have want to have much to do with in the first place, was kind of responsible for slaughtering mermaids once you find out that mermaids are real? And no wonder why mermaids don't like humans very much. Because humans in this town have been had slaughtered mermaids in the past. And was it a folk story or was it not? Looks like not so much. So now Ben has to deal with the fact that, A, not only is there a mermaid in his town. And he only knows of the one right now, by the way. Not only that, but he has to deal with the fact that his family is a part of some larger conspiracy. I, I guess you could call it a conspiracy. Because you've got two aspects. You've got Ben and his girlfriend Maddie. And they're kind of... It's almost like a aquatic preservation place where they take care of, of animals and stuff like that, and make sure that that everything's preserved and in the area. And then you've got the government aspect because you saw that early on with the with the whole thing with the fishing boat, where the government not only confiscates the mermaid, but they also confiscate their 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 friend. I believe his name was Chris, that was taken off and we they don't know where he is so they want to go find him and they want to catch this mermaid and and this thing that did this to them so you've got the fishing crew who's not thrilled mermaids you've got the government who wants to find out more about what the mermaids do and then you've got ben and maddie and everyone else who's trying to figure out exactly what's going on with this particular mermaid of course which is rin and rin says that she's looking for her sister so there's a couple of different things going on here now is this show perfect No, by no means is it perfect. I mean, there's certainly some elements in here where you kind of see where the story's going. And you kind of understand, like, especially when they start talking about Maddie's family, you kind of understand where that's going with her mom being missing. And I'm not going to spoil it. This is one thing I won't spoil for you if you haven't connected the dots yet from watching the show. You kind of know where that's going. And then you've got Helen, who is kind of like... The Mermaid Whisperer, and she's seen some stuff, and she runs a shop in town, and she knows all about the history of the mermaids and stuff like that. And then you've got the town of Bristol Cove itself, which is basically obsessed with mermaids, or basically what our idea of a mermaid would be. And I talked to Liam Powell about that. Does this show kind of change our perception of what mer- mermaids are? It absolutely does that. It This is a different, very much not Ariel-esque story for sure. There's a pretty good horror element in it. I mean, it's not hardcore horror. There's no gore there. But there's certainly some, I guess, quote-unquote scenes of terror that are very interesting. There's also the what-do-you-think-is-lurking-around-the-corner type aspect that I really, really liked. But just the general idea of this show very, very much intrigues me. And I think it intrigues me to the point where I'm definitely going to keep watching Siren. Is it a home run knock out of the park? I don't know yet. I think the jury's still out on that, but I think that this is something that's very different for Freeform and very different in a story that's not really told in this way before. And sure, there's a couple of Disney references thrown in here and there because it's Freeform. They're owned by Disney, and they're able to do that, so why not do that? But the fact that we've already seen a couple of instances of the violence ratcheted up here is something that you don't really expect from Freeform. And Aline Powell wasn't kidding when she said the Mermaid Siren song is going to be playing a huge role in the show going forward because there's something happening at that government government facility and it hasn't one hundred percent full on happened yet. But you feel like there's way, way more to come. So I'm definitely down for watching more Siren. I think that the next next couple of episodes, since they did did the two big two-hour premiere, I think the next couple of episodes are really going to tell us where the show is going. And I think not until then can we really make a determination on whether Freeform has a hit on their hands or not. That was a lot of geek tainment. And up next, we're going to be talking about a lot of nerd news to go with it. It's right here on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Blair Redford from The Gifted, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. So we thought we'd talk about a little something just for fun, because it's time for nerd news. And I say just for fun, because if you're scrolling through Instagram and you happen to follow Arrow costume designer Andy Poon on Instagram, he put up a very, very interesting post where it was a concept art work in progress for a Terry McGinnis Batman Beyond suit. Now, why am I talking about this? Because he said that they're actually... He says, quote, Me and a small team will actually be making this into a real suit for fun. First of all, this is not necessarily something you make into a real suit for fun. I get it. Maybe they do really enjoy the character. And maybe this is something that they kind of want to do to try and kickstart something... That's not actually happening yet. I mean, I think Batman Beyond fans would love to see a live-action Terry McGinnis Batman Beyond show. I know that I am one of them. But it just seems fishy, right? That you, you assume that Andy and his team are pretty busy. So, how could they possibly have time to, A, do a concept art for this, and, B, make the entire suit for fun? I realize that there are breaks in between shooting, and maybe you're not designing and putting stuff together all of the time, right? But this just seems like a pretty intense pet project. So, I mean, this has already gotten a bunch of likes and shares, stuff on Instagram, comicbook.com picked up the story and talked about it as well. So, I don't think that this is something that we could just brush off and say, ah, oh, well, it's nothing from nothing. I mean, there's nothing confirmed or anything like that. True, there isn't. But isn't it interesting that this just happened out pop up Right as we're heading towards finales, I'm not even saying we're going to be seeing Terry McGinnis in any sort of near future, in any show in the Arrowverse. I think Legends of Tomorrow makes the most sense, but they've already got a lot going on there. So why would you just kind of force him into that? There are a bunch of different places where you could introduce Terry McGinnis if you want to. Maybe a big DC Comics crossover next season. Who knows? It just feels like this is more than just a pet project, doesn't it? So I wanted to bring it up, just in case you weren't aware of what was going on, or if you don't have Instagram, or if you're not following Andy Poon, which you might want to, just in case you want updates on this. Nobody's commented on anything or anything like that. I just thought it was interesting, so I wanted to bring it up. Speaking of interesting, the Fantastic Four are coming back to Marvel Comics after a hiatus, after the horrible Fantastic Four movie, when they were kind of pushed to the side, and Dan Slott and Sarah Piscelli are going to be the team involved in bringing back the Fantastic Four in August of 2018. Not a whole lot of details beyond that, but on the flip side of that, we also have the Death of Inhumans. It's going to be coming up starting in July, which is going to be Don Cates and Ariel Olivetti, which are going to be dealing with that. Now, before I talk about this revival and what it means, this is kind of a dangerous precedent. I think Marvel's setting, and I'm, I don't, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it's like if you fail on any screen, large or small, Marvel is going to put you in comics jail until you do a better job. I mean, think about it. We had the not-so-successful X-Men Apocalypse, and then suddenly Death of X-Men pops up. We have the very much not-so-successful Inhumans live-action series that did nothing at ABC, and all of a sudden, the Inhumans are dying. I realize that Wolverine is different. They did Death of Wolverine, and, well, hey, we had that Wolverine movie that wasn't so successful either before Logan, right? So, again, Death of Wolverine. So. You should be quaking in your boots if you're a Marvel TV show or movie. If you don't do well, your comics are going bye-bye. And I'm maybe that's a complete coincidence, okay? Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I'm not sure that's how you should do it. You should almost use your comics as a breeding ground or a testing ground to see what works and what doesn't and then try to adapt from there, you know, combining the old and the new sort of thing. That's just my personal opinion. But it's just, it's very coincidental, isn't it? I'm not saying that's exactly what's happening. But I do think it's interesting that you've got Dan Slott on the Fantastic Four comics team. You know, he's not going to be doing Spider-Man anymore, so why not find another book for him to do? But Marvel does that too. They seem to take the same creators and shove them on all of their books. It feels like there's literally four people writing all the Marvel comics. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe if you've got a superstar, why not use them to write a lot of books, and I'm not saying that DC doesn't do that either, but Marvel seems to take it to a whole other level, but I think that going back to Don Cates for a second in The Death of Inhumans, I really like what Donnie's been doing since he's been at Marvel. I think that the fact that his Thanos run is ending is is kind of too soon, I thought that that was a run that could have actually gone on a while, and I think that that's something that you could have really built off of. But what he's doing with Doctor Strange, it almost seems like when Marvel wants to do something different, they give Donny Cates a call. And I don't blame them for that at all. And I think that what Donny's bringing to Marvel is something that's going to push their future forward if Marvel allows that to happen. And it seems like they are. So really interested to see exactly how the Fantastic Four are reintroduced. Maybe they're not just reintroduced. Maybe they're just brought back and you kind of almost act like It never happened and you do what Marvel does and that's reboot, right? So maybe this will be a reboot. Well, it looks like we're going to have the original team and everything's going to be set back to normal with the Fantastic Four. And then with the death of Inhumans, we've already got Black Bolt being canceled in in April. This is not a shock at all, but do they kill them off or do they quote unquote kill them off? the direction that they go with that. I'm not sure I'll miss the Inhumans either, honestly. I mean, I was never a huge fan of the Inhumans aside from a few individual Inhumans. I wasn't a fan of them as a whole. So this isn't something that I think I'm really going to miss. Something that fans are going to miss before it even happens is the Deadpool animated series, which of course was supposed to be on FXX. It was canceled and there was a whole bunch of speculation as to why this wasn't going to happen. And Donald Glover has decided to come on and say, hey, by the way, this wasn't on me. This isn't something that I wanted to happen. As a matter of fact, he went as far as posting some pages from one of the scripts that would have been for the Deadpool animated series. And I got to tell you, pretty good stuff. If you haven't read them yet, you can just go to Donald Glover's Twitter page and see for yourself. And he also wanted to make sure that people knew that, hey, I was not too busy to do this. I know that that was one of the things that people were wondering about. No, I was not too too busy to do this at all. Now, Donald Glover is a busy dude. He's got a lot going on, right? But if he says he wasn't too busy, I believe him. And it almost feels like the whole Disney acquisition of Fox, and of course that included FX and all the FXX programming and stuff like that, It almost feels like they went, hey, so you guys okayed this without our okay, so now this just isn't going to happen. Even though you've got a good team, it seems like you've got a good team that's involved here, we're just not going to do this. And I have no information to back that up whatsoever, that's just my personal opinion again, but it seems like Donald Glover's a little miffed, and he's got to be miffed for a reason. Not putting words in Donald's mouth at all, but it seems like... He wants to let people know that this wasn't his decision. So why was this decision made? Especially when you're printing money with Deadpool, right? Are you just worried that maybe tonally this will be different from the live action movie and you don't want to do that? Or you're worried that fans are going to think it should be tied in? Look, it's okay to do two different things. It really, really is. It's okay to have movies that are different from TV shows and TV shows that are different from animated series and stuff like that. And I know that they do that with their Disney XD series and stuff like that for Marvel. But at the same time, it's almost like if it's out there, it has to be connected in some way, whether it be to the X-Men universe or the Disney universe and the whole it's all connected thing. I think we're starting to see again. This is one of those times where that could be to the detriment of the Marvel brand as a whole. And I'm not saying that this would have been the be all end all of anything because it was still going to be on FXX and maybe there are other reasons for this not happening. But It's just a shame that this looks like it could have been a cool thing, and now we're not going to get it. Speaking of cool things that we are going to get, though, Rom the Space Knight, yes, from the Hasbro universe, is officially going to be getting his own movie, and it looks like... They have wasted no time at Paramount in grabbing a writer from a hot project. That's right. Zach Penn, who was the writer for Ready, the Ready Player One adaptation, is going to be writing the Rom the Space Knight movie. Now, Hasbro's AllSpark Pictures, which was formed not too long ago, is going to be working with Paramount on this. I know that Rom had a history with Marvel. Don't expect a crossover there, any kind of things like that. It looks like this will definitely be tied more to the IDW universe. I think Ron the Space Knight is a character that could work absolutely really well in a movie, but here's the deal. I know that they've tried to make the Transformers movies and in a different universe. I realized that, but Ninja Turtles movies for everyone, right? You want to make sure that they're good for kids and that they are good for adults as well. Well, you failed in at least one of those with the Transformers movies, especially recently. So, Rom is not necessarily a character I would say is made for children. I know you certainly could do that, but this is definitely a more serious story, right? You know, he's battling the dire wraiths, which are pretty nasty, scary, alien creatures, right? Across the universe, you know, he saves his home planet, and now the dire wraiths are starting to invade other places like Earth, and I'm sure this will probably take place on Earth, this movie. No details released on it yet, but you you kind of think just for familiarity's sake this part of this, or at least some of this will take place on Earth, right? So, this is serious subject matter. So, I don't think you necessarily need to make this for kids. I think that this is one of those movies where I don't think you need to force anything. But I think, as far as ratings go, you go, you shoot for like a PG-13 type of rating. It doesn't need to be rated R at all. So, I'm not going to say that it doesn't need to be rated R. But you know, you could do a de- definite PG-13 movie here and make a good rom movie. And I think that the tone in the origin of how they decide to bring this character forward is going to be the key to whether or not this succeeds. Tonally, I think, more, way more important than anything else. I don't think you need to make it super dark, but you don't need to throw in a whole bunch of humor and stuff in there to try and make it for everybody. Just make this what the character is. I'm not saying that this story can't be funny at all or anything like that. I'm not even sure that this needs to involve a whole lot of human elements. What I am saying is, is that, Just let this be what it is and see what happens, because I don't think that the Hasbro movies have really done that so far, especially with Transformers, because you're trying to make sure it's for everyone. Make Rom, The Space Knight, what it is and see what happens. You haven't tried that yet with any of these Hasbro movies. Not that there have been a ton of them since AllSpark Pictures was created, but maybe that's the key here. Maybe this is them stepping in at Hasbro and saying, let's just do this as a true adaptation and see where it goes because you really have nothing to lose at this point after the spectacular failure of the last two transformers movies really quickly i want to get to this as well gina rodriguez going to bring bringing carmen san diego to life at netflix now this is going to be a live action movie and said to be an extension of the already announced animated series which is going to be coming out in 2019, which will also be voiced by Rodriguez. Of course, you know her from Jane the Virgin. She was just in Annihilation not too long ago. She's also going to be one of the producers involved in the Carmen Sandiego movie. And it's also being, the movie's kind of also being called a standalone. So it's a little bit contradictory. We don't know for sure if this is going to be connected to the animated series or not, or if this is just going to be a standalone movie. Either way, I'm fine with it. I'm just actually surprised that it's taken this long for somebody to do something with Carmen Sandiego. I remember playing that on PC for so long and getting steeped in the history and everything. And I don't think it's a bad thing to want to teach kids or even adults, for that matter, young adults, about history. Let this be, again, what it is. Let there be some historical accuracy in this that goes along with a fictional story. We've seen that, if done well, can be done really really well and can be very very interesting so I really hope that you know I wouldn't be afraid to I wouldn't be afraid of camp here either and I know Gina Rodriguez is very charming and she can be very funny so I wouldn't take that away entirely but again I would let this be what it is and see what happens because I know that there's a, well, you know, we don't want to get too bogged down in history because that can be boring. Okay. Well, there's plenty of history that's not boring and there's plenty of things that you could draw from that don't need that Again, it's, there are also things that have been drawn from like a thousand times that I'm not sure that we need to revisit. So I'm very curious to see again, tonally how this is, and if this will be connected to the animated series. And I guess we'll get a good idea of how Gina Rodriguez is from the animated series before the movie itself comes out. That'll do it for Nerd News this week. Up next, we're going to sit down with Gabriel Bateman and talk about The Dangerous Book for Boys on Amazon. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm Haley Mancini. And I'm Jake Goldman. And we are writers for the Powerpuff Girls. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Yeah. The show that we're really excited to talk about on our show this week is called Dangerous Book for Boys. going to be on Amazon Prime on March the 30th. And we actually have one of the stars from the show with us who plays Wyatt. It's Gabriel Bateman. Gabriel, how are you doing?
1: Well, how are you? Thanks for having me.
0: I'm doing great, man. I hey, Thanks for taking the time to do this. Now, before we get to a, the Dangerous Book for Boys, I mean, you've done a lot of work in horror and mystery and thriller genres and stuff like that. So what's it like to tackle such intense subject matter at such a young age? Because I'd probably be scared to death.
1: I'd say, honestly, it's, um, it's about the same as a lot of other roles just because you're not going to be the exact same as any character. So it's going to be um, acting and at the end of the day, no matter what. But with the more intense roles, um, I enjoy them more, because I enjoy playing more complex characters. And on set, it's basically the same, because as soon as they say cut, everyone... You see guys comparing tattoos and grips talking about their daughters, so...
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of those roles was actually on Outcast. So let's talk about that for a minute as well, because I remember reading that comic when it first came out. Now, did you actually get to read the comic before filming the series? But how And how amazing was it to play Joshua?
1: Uh, I didn't read the comic because uh, I hadn't heard of it before I started filming the series, but I did after. And they're really, really great. Uh, and Joshua, to this day, is probably one of my favorite roles. It was really amazing because I got to play a, a demon-possessed child, so, a demon on one end, and when he was exercised, I got to play an innocent little boy that was scared and didn't know what, what just happened. So, um, acting-wise, there was a lot to take in, which was really, really fun. And I re- met one of my best friends to this day, Patrick Fugat, on that. So,
0: So is it really cool to be able to play kind of two different characters in the same show doing that?
1: Yeah, it was amazing. It was, I'd never really done anything like that before, and I haven't since, so it was a super fun and new experience.
0: Well it's talking about what you're doing right now, which is the Dangerous Book for Boys on Amazon Prime Video. Now for anyone who isn't familiar with the show or the book, tell us a little bit about it.
1: Uh The Dangerous Book for Boys is about a family who is struggling with the loss of their father. And he left a book for his three youngest for his three sons. And the youngest son, White McKenna, it sparks his imagination and he starts having all these crazy and wild fantasies. And in each fantasy, it's a life lesson, and he sees that, because he can't handle them by himself. And it's based, Brian uh, Cranston and Greg Muntola based the story off The Dangerous Books Boys Book, which is a guidebook for young boys and girls, and... Basically, that's
0: it. We're talking to Gabriel Bateman, of course, of the Dangerous Book for Boys. He plays Wyatt, which will be available on March the 30th on Amazon Prime Video. Now, Gabriel, I remember reading somewhere that you're the youngest of eight children. Now, on the show, Wyatt has two brothers, so both of whom are very, very different as well. So how much do you feel like you kind of related to Wyatt once you started filming?
1: Yeah, I think it helped a lot that, I was, that we were both the youngest of relatively large families or at least his is relatively large, mine is pretty huge. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah, that's an understanding.
1: I think a lot of both of our personalities stem from that, um, so that definitely helped to relate to the character. And also to form the bond with my brothers in the show, Drew and Kyan, it also helped to have five older brothers that I knew had a, an act with.
0: Did it kind of help that everybody was a little bit different and everybody kind of had their own little place in the cast on the show as well?
1: Definitely. Uh, every character ha- plays a different role, and every character speaks to a different part of the show, and they each have something that they fulfill in the show. Like, for example, Dash is the comedy relief, and he helps in a lot of situations to make them lighter. Wyatt is very sensitive and observant, so he's kind of he's the starter of a lot of emotional scenes. Liam is smart, so um, he helps solve a lot of situations in the show.
0: For you. Now we got to see a couple of the adventures that Wyatt gets to go on in the Dangerous Book for Boys trailer that's on Amazon, so without spoiling anything was there one that kind of stuck out to you that was your favorite during the show?
1: It's between the second episode, uh, I can't say much about it like you said, but it's a western fantasy and I think the fourth episode Roman fantasy, Roman because I love Roman history and mythology and the western because it was probably my favorite set, there was so much to it Um, but I'd say it's a tie between those two.
0: I would say the second one's my favorite, too, so I'm with you on that one. Great. Now, one of the things I also loved about the show was that Wyatt's dad was an inventor, and we actually get to see some of those inventions early in the show. Now, is there anything, Gabriel, that hasn't been invented yet that you would love to see be invented?
1: Uh, Anything? Anything. I think they're working on it right now, but if they perfected medical nanobots... I think that would help with a lot. Yeah, I think that's that's what I would
0: want. That's really cool. I like the way your mind works. That that's a really good one. Thank you. Now, Gabriel, I've been told that you're also a bit of an anime fan as well. Now, we've seen a lot of anime start, We we've seen a lot of anime start to become live action TV series and movies and stuff like that. Is there one particular anime or maybe even a couple that you would love to be part of a live action version of?
1: Oh, that's hard. Well, I would love to play Kaneki and Tokyo Ghoul, but I think I'm too young. So at my current age, um, I think the only one that I can really think of is Nia from Death Note. So, I guess, yeah, probably Death Note.
0: That would be cool. I mean, they've, they've, they've done that on Netflix, but why not try it again, right? Exactly. And they haven't even talked about Tokyo Ghoul yet, so I think you've got time.
1: Yeah, there's no, no talk about that becoming a cinematic TV show or a movie. So
0: that's great. Maybe I can become old enough when they finally do it. There you go. There's there's plenty of time. Don't even worry about that. Because you've still got plenty of other stuff going on. I mean, you talked about loving Roman history. I mean, along with being a comic book nerd, I'm also a history nerd myself. So I'm a big fan of the Braveheart story. And you're actually getting to play Scott in the upcoming Robert the Bruce movie, which actually picks up right where Braveheart left off. Now, is there anything that you can tell us about the movie or your experience so far?
1: I don't think I can say too much about it, but like you said, it picks up right where Braveheart left off following Robert the Bruce. I play Scott, who is a young and feisty warrior. When he first interacts with the Bruce, they're not fans of each other. And I think it has a very similar spirit to the first Braveheart. I think that's about as much as I can say about it. And as far as experience goes, we filmed in Montana most of the time, which was freezing, and I'm from California, So I wasn't really ready for that much cold at once. And um, we also filmed in Scotland, which was so beautiful and probably my
0: favorite place I've ever been to. Wow, that sounds really neat. Now, before I let you go, Gabriel, I wanted to give you one more question about the Dangerous Book for Boys. Because it's so easy these days to get wrapped up in technology. And this show is not afraid to tackle that subject at all. So do you feel like this show almost serves as a reminder that we need to use our imaginations?
1: Definitely. I think that's one of the main purposes of the show is to tell kids and adults alike to start looking at the outside world and further than that start interacting with their kids and their family and start using their imagination,
0: like you said. Well, before you guys turn your Wi-Fi off, make sure you're binge-watching The Dangerous Book for Boys, which is available on Amazon Prime Video on March the 30th. You can also see Gabriel in the remake of Benji on Netflix as well right now. And Robert Roos is scheduled to be released in 2019. It's Gabriel Bateman Wyatt from The Dangerous Book for Boys. Thanks for chatting with me this week. Thanks for having me. I got to tell you, I got a chance to see The Dangerous Book for Boys early from Amazon. And one thing I loved about it so much was the family dynamic and the focus on, as I talked about with Gabriel, imagination and how you should never let that go, especially at a young age. And we're so filled with technology. And hey, I love technology. If it was for technology, you wouldn't be listening to me talking right now. So I love technology, but at the same time... One of the things I really am going to try to do as a parent is to teach my son, okay, there's a time for the technology and there's a time to put it down and just let your imagination move forward. And he's three now and he's really starting to develop a little bit more of an imagination. And I love seeing that. I love seeing that being brought forward by a show like The Dangerous Book for Boys, who also deals with a serious subject matter, but at the same time shows how strong a family can be In tough times, but at the same time, find that. I I don't want to say escapism because I'm not sure that that's really the right word for it, but find those moments of peace, I guess you could say, and see how something like this from a father who is no longer with the family and how it brings them together. Absolutely amazing job. And this is a show. If you have a family or if you just love family shows and movies, this is one that should be high on your list. Make sure you're watching the watching the Dangerous Book for Boys. Binge it right now on Amazon Prime Video. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Gabriel Bateman and his team for joining me this week. And if you want more of us, always go to our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. You can also find us on social media there, facebook.com slash downandnerdy and at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram. Remember, though, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.